Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada. And however you have found our podcast, we're so glad you're here. Before we jump into today's message, just a couple things I want to let you know. If you go to our website, www.duncanchurch.com, you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us. We have an online connect card you can fill out. Maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email we send this out once a week it's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online apart from that there is a give button so if you're feeling led you can do that right online through our website you can also find us on facebook and youtube we are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that god's going to do something special in you through today's message enjoy Uh, we're going to talk about the gospel of Mark this morning. We're going to talk about Jesus. How many want to talk about Jesus? Yeah, right on. And I want to begin this morning, we are looking at the gospel of Mark, but I want to begin in a different gospel, the gospel of John. And we're going to look at chapter 10, verse 10, to start off this morning our text. And this is what chapter 10 of John, or sorry, verse 10 of chapter 10 says. It says, the thief, who's the thief? Satan. Satan comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I, and who is I in this case? Jesus, have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Do you see this contrast? What a contrast there is that Satan's only goal in life is to steal life from you. That's all Satan wants to do. Steal life from you. He wants to kill you. He wants to destroy you. That's his only game plan. Satan destroys. Jesus, on the other hand, in in contrast, brings life. And probably nowhere in scripture is this as clearly illustrated than what we will see today in Mark chapter 5. We're going to see the story of the demoniac, the demon-possessed man that is set free uh, by Jesus. And, and in our modern societies, you know, Satan may act in a little bit more kind of discreet or secretive kind of way, but, but his intentions are still the same. He still seeks to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Satan wants to ruin lives. Jesus wants to redeem lives. And so we're going to see that this morning in Mark chapter 5. If you have Bible, there should be Bibles in the seats all around you. If you do not have one, grab a Bible this morning or on your phone, look it up. Um, Mark chapter 5, second book of the New Testament. Uh, I do not have the text on the screen, so it'll be much easier if you follow along in your own Bibles. Uh, Why don't we pray before beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5. Father, this morning, we're going to read a story about freedom, about a man that is set free. And Lord, I believe in this room there are many of us that need freedom. We need freedom in you, Jesus. And I pray that, Lord, the power of your word would teach us today, Lord, to help us to walk this out. Lord, that it would not just be some story that happened a couple thousand years ago, but that it would become reality in our lives as well. And so, Father, have your way this morning. Lord, let your word speak and teach. We invite your Holy Spirit to, to be the ultimate teacher this morning. Give us ears to hear. We pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, the first thing that we will see in the text this morning is bound. That's the first thing we'll see is bound. Chapter five, verse one. They came to the other side of the sea. I have to stop there because if you were with us last Sunday, we talked all about this storm that came up. Jesus got the disciples to go in the boat to cross the Sea of Galilee and what happened? A storm, a big storm, a crazy storm to the point that they thought they were going to die. But if you remember last week, we talked about how they were, Jesus said, we're going to go across. We're going to go over to the other side, not go under. We're going to go over. And what do we see here? They made it over, 
right? They made it over. Storms will come, but you need to know the storms don't last forever. So they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So Jesus and the disciples, they get across the lake, and Jesus steps out of the boat, and who is to meet him right away but the local welcome wagon, right? This is who's here. To, they arrive, and except for the welcome wagon's more like a character out of a horror movie. That's what we really see. Luke's gospel actually tells us that this man had been like this for a long time, and he was actually naked, not even clothed whatsoever. And so picture, if you will, in your minds, or maybe don't picture it, but this naked, crazy guy that just screams out night and day with broken chains hanging off of him, with, with, with cuts and sores and open wounds, blood probably still dripping perhaps, kind of a gory scene coming from his body, tormented, self-harming, crying out all the time, uncontrollable, we're told nobody could tame him. And you've got to imagine for a Jew, as the disciples would step out of the boat, what would you be inclined to do? This guy comes running at you, I'd be like, I'm getting back in the boat. I'd rather go through that storm again. Right? That's probably perhaps what they're thinking, but Jesus stands his ground. For a Jew, this, everything is bad about this situation. It's unclean in every way. They've, they've brought their boat to a place where there's a bunch of tombs, a graveyard. Right? Jews were not to touch dead bodies, and so already there's some problems. There's a demon-possessed man. Well, obviously Jews and demons don't like to get along, so this is another bad thing. We're going to see there's also a couple thousand pigs that are right around there. So they're unkosher, they're unclean. So for a Jew, everything here is bad. But we also see a little bit of the reasoning behind why Jesus felt so compelled to get to the other side. Because this man is in a horrible, horrible state. This guy is in a real rough state. This poor guy, it's desperate. He has, think about it, he has superhuman strength. He says that he breaks apart chains. They, they would chain him up to try to control him. He would break the chains to, to be free and then he'd break the shackles as well. The guy has superhuman strength. Yet, do you notice that he's completely bound? right? He's free. I mean, there's no chains. He can go wherever he wants, but yet he's totally enslaved at the same time. He's alive, but actually he's more dead than alive. Did you notice three times in those verses we were told this emphasis on the tombs, that he lived among the tombs, among the tombs, among the tombs. Three times we're told that. He's more dead than he is alive. And in so many ways, this man is a picture of where sin leads. Sin. You guys know what sin is? It starts out pretty fun. Let's be honest, that's why we do it, right? We enjoy it. In fact, the book of Hebrews tells us that there is pleasure in sin for a season. There is. We're not going to lie to you. There's a reason that we sin. Our flesh wants to. We, we enjoy it. The problem is, is that, like Hebrews says, there's pleasure in sin for a season. That season will always come to an end. It does. It always comes to an end. And then eventually, the sin isn't fun. Instead, it turns into torment. It turns into bondage. It turns into slavery. You see, the devil promises a good time, but sooner or later, it's not a good time anymore, and you are mastered by it. You are a slave to it. You can't go without a drink or a drag or a hit or a look, whatever it would be. You're a slave. It masters you, the desire for that thing, whatever it might be. It might be food. It might be, it might be anger that wells up within you. It might be control. It might be gossip. Who knows? But it controls you. 
And it's no longer fun because it's slavery and you're bound, seemingly without hope. And all society can often do is offer you maybe just some more drugs or medications. Maybe they'll lock you up, put you in a straitjacket. And you may be strong even. But, but how many of you know this? But you're too weak in yourself to stop doing that thing. Have you ever had that feeling like you just can't stop doing something? You want to, but you can't stop. This man is the extreme example of that. The extreme example. I mean, in many ways, we struggle not to the same degree, maybe not as visible, maybe not as obvious, but in many ways, oftentimes, we find ourselves just as bound as this man. And maybe you're here and you're thinking, well, I'm not demon-possessed, though. Am I? I I don't know. I mean, most Christians, the majority of Christians, the, the Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada, which is the fellowship of churches that we belong to, as a congregation, would all teach that you cannot be a Christian, a follower of Christ, have the Spirit of Christ living in you, and at the same time be demon-possessed. So that's what many would teach. I would teach this. I would teach that it's semantics. Because here's the reality. I don't really believe that we can be possessed by the Spirit of Christ. You need to know this. The Spirit of God lives in you. If you have put your faith in Christ, the Spirit of Christ is in you. And I, I agree. I don't know that a demon can live where the Spirit It's not like they can share rooms right? However, the reason I say I think it's semantics is because I think we would all agree that we have experienced demonic influence in our lives. Do you know what I'm saying? So whether we say whether we are possessed or oppressed, whatever terminology you want to use, there are very real demonic forces that you probably have experienced from some time or another, that we all can, even as Christians. In fact, Paul even wrote to the church of Ephesus that the devil can get a foothold in a Christian's life, Right? 2 Corinthians 10 speaks about demonic strongholds over us as Christians. So whether you're using the word possessed or oppressed, we would all agree that demonic forces can influence us, have strong influence in our lives. And so what do you do? The reality is, is that we are too weak in ourselves, in our own strength to battle Satan. We are. We can't do it. No matter how strong you are, this man had superhuman strength but could not rid himself of these demons. In fact, that's why he had the superhuman strength, really. So maybe you're bound, like this man. What do we need? Well, secondly, we need bigger. We need bigger. And who's bigger? Come on, who's bigger? Jesus. Jesus Jesus is bigger. Okay, look at verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Now, what's amazing here is that, do you notice this? God goes to those who can't help themselves. This man is completely helpless. He's completely bound. He can't help himself. So what does Jesus do? He crosses a lake to get over to this guy. It's the Sea of Galilee. It's actually a lake we learned last week. And maybe you've actually heard it before. You know, maybe you've heard that scripture verse that God helps those who help themselves. You know that verse? You don't know that verse? By the great apostle Benjamin Franklin, supposedly, who coined that term? Yeah, it's not a verse, so hopefully you don't know it, okay? It's not a scripture verse that God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible, In fact, the Bible doesn't teach that one bit, that that you do your part or you do your best and God will do the rest. That's not in Scripture. In fact, Romans chapter 5 verse 6 tells us this. It says that when we were utterly helpless, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for our sins. And maybe you're here today and you feel helpless. You feel bound. You feel stuck. Not even able to come to Jesus. You know what? I would say this. I would say perfect. Perfect. 
Because the picture that we get in Scripture is Jesus over and over again, like this man, went to those that couldn't help themselves, to those that couldn't come to him. And if you find yourself in that very condition, that's the the Jesus that meets you here today. Think about the people that were lame. They couldn't walk to Jesus. They were crippled. The people that were blind, they couldn't see where to get to him. But Jesus would still go to them. He would heal them. Think about the lepers. It was against the law for them to even come near people. Jesus went to lepers. He even touched them. He touched them and cleansed them. You see, the message of Christ is not do your best, try your hardest, and God will make up the rest. That is not the message. The message of Christ is this, that he has come because we can't do anything to help ourselves. That's the message of Jesus. That's what Romans 5, 6 told us, that we are utterly helpless. And this man could not come to Jesus, but notice, Jesus crossed that Sea of Galilee to get to him. And I want you to know this morning that if you can't make it to Jesus, Jesus has made it to you. He has come to you. He's here, and he has come to you. And what happens when Jesus comes? Here's what we see in the text. Whatever holds you bondage must submit and fall before Christ. That's what this demon-possessed man does. He just falls before Jesus because Jesus is bigger. You need to know that today. Jesus is bigger. Jesus is stronger. Look at verse 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Well, how do these demons know who Jesus is? Well, we got to remember that demons are fallen angels. They're fallen angels. They knew who Jesus was long before humanity even existed. And in fact, many demons have probably better theology than a lot of churches out there these days. Let's be honest. I mean, James chapter 2 verse 19 tells us that even demons believe there is one God. But he goes on to say this, but the difference is between them and a lot of these other churches is that the demons actually shudder. (laughs) They tremble with that knowledge, with that understanding. And here the demon calls Jesus most high God, which is interesting because this was a title. This was a title that often was used by Gentiles to refer to the God of Israel. They would talk about the most high God and that was to talk about the God of the Israelites, the God of Israel. However, in the New Testament, the vast majority of the time that we see this term used is primarily by those that are under demonic influence. And it's really in many ways an acknowledgement of a greater power, the most high God, Jesus is the most high God, recognizing that by a lesser spiritual power. And this demon knows, well, it's, it's reign of terror is over. It's time for judgment. Judgment is coming. In fact, in Luke's gospel of the same account, they don't just say, this man doesn't just say under the demonic influence, Um, don't torment us but he says don't throw us as well into the abyss don't put us into the abyss they know what their time is going to be they they will be forever put away locked away tormented and so verse 9 jesus says this he asked him what is your name he replied my name is legion for we are many I, i love how one commentator kind of translates this he says he says this when jesus says what is your name he just simply translates as mob we are mob Because that's essentially what this demon is saying. We are so many, we're like a mob. We're we're trying to intimidate, right? You see, you got to understand, a Roman legion was about 6,000 soldiers. I actually read in in, um, numerous accounts that say there were 6,000 foot soldiers, aside from like cavalry, what do you, cavalry, that's the word, not cavalry. (laughs) Cavalry is a great place. Cavalry, a bunch of horses that, that ride with men on them. So there'd be like a whole bunch of cavalry and there'd be other kinds of like chariots and whatever else. So this is like a a horde of demons is what he's saying. There's a whole bunch. Think about that. 6,000 demons to one Jesus. 
I mean, how unfair, how impossible the odds for those poor demons. That's the reality. They don't stand a chance. Jesus is bigger than any horde of demons, any army of demons. And in fact, we see in the text that they actually have to resort to begging. They resort to begging. Look at verse 10. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. Now you know, the, the, the one that begs is always going to be the lesser, correct? Right? The child begs the parent. Why? Because they're not the parent. They're the child. Right? The lesser always begs of the greater. And this is, who's doing the begging here? Potentially 6,000 demons. Whether or not there's actually 6,000 demons in this man, we know there are an awful lot. And they are having to beg. Who has the upper hand in this account? It's obvious. It's clear. It's Jesus. There's no question. Who is bigger here? In fact, when Jesus, um, think about it. Back in Mark chapter 3, we saw how when he was, Jesus was casting demons out of people back in Mark 3. And do you remember that the religious leaders, they, they accused Jesus of actually working for Satan. Do you remember that? Right? And how does he rebut their, 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 their accusation? Verse 26 and 27. I want to read from the New Living Translation this morning. Mark 3. It says this, and if Satan is divided, this is what he says, you think I'm casting out demons by Satan? Are you fools? He says this, if Satan is divided and fights against himself, how can he stand? He would never survive. Let me illustrate this further, Jesus went on to say. Who is powerful enough to enter the house of a strong man and plunder his goods? Only someone even stronger. Someone who could tie him up and then plunder his house. And what is Jesus doing? He is plundering the house of Satan right now. That's what he's showing. He's demonstrating that he is bigger, that he is stronger, and he is the true strong man. We saw this last week how in, in, um, in, in Colossians, how Satan has been disarmed. He's been detoothed. That if you put your faith in Christ, if you belong to Christ, he doesn't have power over you. He doesn't. In fact, um, we often think as Christians, we think that um, the, the spiritual authority kind of goes like, well, who would have most authority? God, of course, God. If he is God, he has to have all authority. And so we would put God at the top of the authority chain, right? God's at the very top. And then oftentimes we think as Christians that next would be Satan or demons. They're powerful. They are powerful. They're very powerful. They're not, they're not to be trifled or played around with. And so we'd often think that it would be God and then Satan and demons. And then we would put maybe Christians next in the spiritual authority chain. And then we put the rest of the world, unbelievers. But that's not what the Bible tells us. The Bible teaches us that we, in Ephesians, says that we have been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And you know what that means? That means that God, if you said Jesus has all authority, we've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Where does that place us in the spiritual authority chain? Above Satan. We are not under Satan. We are above. We've been seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. We have authority. And so Satan here with Jesus, they, they need to ask permission. They actually beg Jesus. Look at verse 13. They beg him, and then what does he do? He gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Crazy. I guess the demons just wanted a piggyback ride. Sorry. You wanted, that was not from the calendar. No. No, I've got some more here, actually. Because it was the first case of deviled ham. Have you ever had deviled ham? <laughs> deviled ham is like minced up ham. And these demons went totally hog wild and pigged out. Do you want me to stop? Okay, I'll stop. I'll stop. I'll stop. I won't ham it up anymore. 
I just really don't want to bore you. No, that wasn't anything. No, that's, no, don't give her a round of applause. That wasn't her calendar at all. That's, she takes no My heart is full. <laughs> okay, okay, no. Um, but do you see this? Do you see the, ex- the example here, the picture, right, that Jesus gives us this illustration of the destructive nature of demons. Satan comes for what reason? To steal, kill, and destroy. This man had been tormented, I already mentioned in Luke's gospel, it says for many years, a long time. He'd been tormented like this. Probably the only reason he wasn't dead yet was because being created in the image of God, there was a greater resistance to the work of the enemy. Demons aren't created in the image, or or sorry, um, well, yeah, demons aren't either. (laughs) Created in the image of God, but animals aren't. And so the resistance is just, and so what happens? The very moment that that the demons leave this man and enter these pigs, what do they do? They, They go crazy and they destroy them. They basically commit suicide. You wanted one more, so I <laughs> Okay, I'm done, I'm done. I'm no, there's no more bad jokes, really, I promise. I promise, you can trust me. Um, but truthfully, this does, it does. It just reveals what Satan, all he wants to do, to steal, to kill, to destroy. And you do not ever think that Satan is innocent or that he has anything good in mind for you. There is nothing good that Satan has in him for your life. Stay away. I think maybe the strangest thing that we see here is, is I kind of ask the question, why did Jesus allow this? Do you kind of wonder? Like, like they actually beg him, don't send us into the abyss. And he's like, okay, I won't. What? Why? Why did he not destroy them? I, I think there's maybe a few possible reasons just to help us maybe understand. One, I think the first possible reason is this, is that the time of his demonstration of total authority had not yet come. What was the demonstration of his total authority over the demonic realm? The cross, the cross. We read this last week, Colossians 2.15. I have the scripture for you. I think we have it for you. Yeah, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by what? By his victory over them on the cross. That work had not yet been finished. He did have authority over them, but he had not finalized that work. So perhaps that is one of the reasons. His, his demonstration of total authority had not yet come. A second possible reason was maybe that Maybe he, he wanted everyone to see what the true intentions of the, the, the demons were. They just want to kill. They want to destroy. And so you would have that picture. And perhaps also to show that this man was truly free now, right? There'd be such a radical, like, okay, they're not in that guy anymore. It's quite clear and obvious. And maybe also to show the value of human life. Some people actually kind of get offended. Oh, all those pigs died. Is one man's life not worth more than pigs? We, we read that scripture last week, Matthew 10, 31 where it talks about don't fear, don't fear those that can kill the body, but not the, the soul and all, right? And Jesus, he says, even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. He said, and he, how does he finish it off by saying, don't fear? Don't be afraid. He says, you are, he talks about the sparrows, that not even a sparrow dies apart from the will of the Father. He says, and don't you worry, because you are worth more than many sparrows. You guys, you are worth more than many pigs, could also be, be said. And I think he's demonstrating the value of a human life. Humans are created in the image of God. Animals are not. So the pigs are dead, sad for the pigs, but this man is totally transformed, we're going to see. Look at verse 14. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind. 
Isn't this incredible? <clears throat> Just incredible. This is what Jesus does for everyone that he sets free. Notice this. He brings peace. He brings rest. What was the description of the man earlier in the text? We're told that day and night, nonstop, he would cry out and scream out and call out under his torment. And what is he doing here? He's sitting down. He's sitting. He's at rest. You know, the Bible says there's no rest for the wicked. It, it actually says that the way of the transgressor is hard. This man has found in Jesus something else. He's found peace and he's found rest. And that's what Jesus does. He invites us to find the same rest in him. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, he invites us. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's what Jesus invites you into. And so many people are trying to find rest and peace and fulfillment in possessions and positions and stuff, drugs, whatever it would be. But it's only Jesus that brings peace, that brings rest. We see that here. He also brings covering. Do you notice the man who at one time was naked, Luke's gospel tells us, running around naked, is now clothed. It says specifically, he was sitting there clothed in his right mind. It specifically says he was clothed. He was oblivious, in a sense, before to, to the, his sin and his shame. But what has happened here? His sense of right and wrong has been restored by Jesus. Galatians 3.27 says that we have been clothed in Christ, covered in his righteousness. Isaiah 44, verse 22 says, God says this, I have swept away your sins like a cloud. I have scattered your offenses like the morning mist. Oh, return to me, for I have paid the price to set you free. Isn't that beautiful? He removes our sin and then he covers us with his righteousness. So he brings peace, he brings rest, he brings covering. And then we see in the text that he brings a new nature, a new mind, right? This, the, the passage clearly says that in his right mind, right? He was a new man. He once lived like a wild animal running around naked and crazy. And now he has a new mind, a new creation, you could say. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Tells us that, that therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He's a new man. In fact, 1 Corinthians 2.16 tells us that as Christians, we actually right now have the mind of Christ. Isn't that amazing? We have the mind of Christ right now if we've put our faith in Jesus. This is amazing, amazing stuff. And all these people from the city and the country, they come and they're excited. They see what's going on. And they're, they, they're going to praise Jesus, aren't they? They're going to go get their friends and their family and they're going to bring them to Jesus so that they can experience the same thing that this man experienced. Or do they? Because the man was bound, Jesus is bigger, but now we see the reaction of everyone is begging. Look at verse 15 as we continue. It's not the reaction you would expect. It says, instead of praising Jesus, instead of bringing all their friends and family, they were afraid. They were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs? And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. Isn't this crazy? I mean, who are the crazy ones now? Really? I like what one commentator said. They said that the exorcism of the possessed man represents a challenge to their lives, a call to a decision. Rather than face the uncomfortable question of who Jesus is and what claim he might make on their lives, they excuse me, they beg him to leave their district. They would prefer to have life go on as it is without any divine interruptions to rock the boat. I guess, in other words, they, they, 
They didn't mind having a crazy demon-possessed guy that would torment them in their midst. But a savior with all authority, a savior with all power, well, Jesus, you need to leave. They probably also maybe knew the kind of impact that Jesus would have had on their economy and on their lives. Like this commentator mentioned. They were confronted, and they seemed to prefer their, their hogs over the healer is what they preferred. And to this day, you know, so many people, they still ask Christ to leave. Why? Because of the cost of fellowship with him. The cost of being in the midst of Christ. They ask Jesus, please leave. There's a, there's a cost socially that if I saddle up with Jesus, what it's going to mean to my social status. There's a cost financially that, that I can't cheat anymore on this or that, or that I got to be upright. There's a cost financially to following Jesus. There's a cost personally to following Jesus. And many people, as Jesus said, would instead prefer to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul. You know what might be, though, the possibly the saddest part of this whole story is that Jesus actually answers their request. You know, sometimes the worst possible thing for us is that Jesus actually answers our prayers. It's true. Look at verse 18. As he was getting into the boat, they asked Jesus to leave and Jesus says, okay, I'll go. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that, they, that he might be with him and he did not permit him. I find this a little confusing. Think about it. The demons beg Jesus to go into the pigs and what does Jesus answer? Yes. The people of the town come out, see the man in his right mind, they beg Jesus to leave and how does Jesus answer? Okay, yes. The man who had been demon-possessed begs, you notice that they all beg. Isn't that interesting? All three of them beg. The demons, the townspeople, and the man who had been possessed by demons all beg Jesus. He begs Jesus, can I go with you? The only request that I think is actually a valid one that you should say yes to, and what does Jesus say? No. What is going on here? Well, verse 19 continues with his reasoning. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, which just simply was the, the 10 cities on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. You see, Jesus' reply to this man is not a rejection. It's really more of a commissioning. He's actually commissioning this man to become an evangelist. That's what he's doing. I like what Sandy Adams says. He says, The first place to shine your light is among those who shared your darkness. The folks who saw your pain are the ones most impressed with your healing. Sometimes following Jesus begins with going home. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes following Jesus begins with going home. And I think this is absolutely beautiful. This man has no training. He's got no background with Jesus. He's got no theological degrees. What does Jesus tell him to do? Just go tell your story. Just go tell your story. Tell everybody. Did you notice? He says, tell everybody, essentially, tell them your new name. I don't know if you picked up on his new name. Verse 15, 16, and 18 all describe him in a new way. As the man who had been possessed with demons. Three times we kind of get this kind of varying ways of communicating that, but he who once had been possessed. He used to be. You could think about this. He, he goes to a party. What is his name tag? Hello, my name is the man who used to be possessed with demons. Right? Going down the road, you could see kids and parents, families maybe looking and going, Mom, 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 that's, 
That's the man, that's the guy who used to be demon-possessed. And you might think, well, that's kind of a bad thing. It points back to something bad. But it's not, because you know what it does? It points back to what he used to be, and everybody can now see that's not who he is now. And we could, you know, we could essentially do the same thing in our church. We could give out name tags. Hello, my name is. And what would your used to be be? All, these, all around us, there, 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 there would, there'd be people all around us. The one who used to be an alcoholic, but Jesus set free. The one who used to be you know, caught up in pride and self-centeredness, but Jesus set me free. You know, the one who used to be full of greed and, and, and covetousness, but Jesus set me free. Used to be. This room right now is full of used to be's. In fact, look around you right now. Just take a look around you. I mean, everyone looks pretty put together. They do. They, they look pretty good. You guys look good this morning. You're welcome. But let me tell you, you might be a little bit nervous if you actually knew what their true name tag said. Used to be. Let's be honest. The things, if you knew that God has delivered us all from, because folks, if you're in this room, you've been delivered. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've been delivered from something. You're a used to be in some way or another. And it's not to be totally ashamed of that. It's actually to point to Jesus. That's what I used to be. But in Christ, that's not me now. I used to be that. And that's the sermon that all of us can preach. Think about how many people would hear this man's story and what would they, they would be able to conclude. If Jesus can deliver that guy, Jesus can deliver me. Right? I love the story of the man born blind in John chapter 8. You know this one. I reference it often because it's just such a perfect illustration of how we are to share our faith. The religious leader, he's healed. He's born blind, healed by Jesus on the Sabbath, which is a big no-no for the religious leaders. And so they're after him. What, who did this? What? And he's like, what was that Jesus guy? And they're, they're asking him all these theological questions, essentially. And I love his response. Basically, he just says this. He says, I don't know. I don't know everything that you're asking me. All I know is this, is that once I was blind, but now I see. I used to be this, but now I'm this. That's the story that Jesus calls every single one of us to preach. I want to close this morning with verse 21, which if you're looking in your Bibles, it's probably the next section in your text. It says this in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. I want you to notice this. This entire trip, this entire storm, every bit of effort that went to go across that lake was for one man. Do you know this? Notice that. For one person, Jesus went through a storm. He journeyed through the night, got to the other side for one man. For one person, he went out of his way to touch one life. It was not a wasted trip. And I want you this morning, I want you to think about this. Where are you at today? Do you need freedom today? Because if you were the only one, Jesus would make the journey. In fact, Jesus didn't just cross over a sea to get to you, to redeem you. You know what he did? He gave his life. He gave his life. He died for you. As we transition to communion this morning, this is, this is what this table and these, these emblems all represent here. The love that Jesus had for you. He loved you so much, he went to the furthest length to display it to bring you back into relationship by dying and giving up his life for you. He paid the price to set you free. And so if you're here this morning, you need freedom, whether it be from satanic possession or oppression, however you want to determine it. 
or define it, whatever it may be, you need to know that Christ is bigger than whatever you're facing. There is freedom in Jesus today. There's freedom. Put your faith in him. Trust in Christ today. Come to him. Come to the table. Accept his invitation for covering, for new life, for a new mind found in him. Or maybe you're here and maybe he's calling you to surrender. He's coming to bring freedom to your life as well. Like those townspeople though, maybe you don't, maybe you don't actually ever verbally say it to Jesus, away from me, leave. Maybe not with your mouth, but with your heart maybe. There's, there's places in your life that you say, Jesus, not there. You're getting a little too close. Back away, Jesus. Back away, Jesus. That's my personal space that you're invading. Please go away. We might not use our words, but we will use our heart to maybe say that. And Jesus says, well, actually, that's my personal space. But it, here's, the, the, here's the sad part. He says, but if you want me to back away, I will. I'll cross back over if you don't want me to stick around. I want us to be a church. I want us to be a people that say, Jesus, have your way in my life. Whatever it costs, whatever it looks like, come and have your way in me. This day, right here, right now, I want to experience freedom in you, Jesus. Because you are more powerful. You are more powerful. As the communion servers come at this time, as the uh, worship team just comes back up, and we transition to communion, where are you at today? What is the Lord speaking to you this morning? What is he speaking to you this morning? What's the area in your life that you need freedom? Because he has come. He has come to set the captives free. That was his mission statement. He has come to set the captives free. And you may be a follower of Jesus here this morning, but there is, there's areas in your life that you are bound. Jesus wants to bring freedom. I want to encourage that this would be that, that, that faith step for you to come to present yourself to Christ and say, Jesus, you can have that hidden place, that secret place. I give it to you now. And so as we prepare, I just would encourage you just to take some time to listen, to allow the Lord to speak. What is it? Where is it? As you come this morning to get the items, come as you feel ready, come as you feel called. Um, I should mention I do have gluten-free crackers as well. If you're gluten-free, come see me at the front. But can we just start by just closing our eyes and just allowing the Lord just to speak to those hidden places perhaps in our lives. Father, I thank you that your sending of Jesus, the, the calling that you place upon his life was to, to set captives free, those that are bound to, to proclaim freedom to the captive. And I pray this morning that all through this room, Lord, every single one of this, uh, every single one of us, myself included, would experience again the freedom that is found in Jesus Christ. Lord, the guilt and the shame can all be removed by you. God, covered by your righteousness. And I thank you for the invitation to come to receive. That, Lord, this is, this is a symbol and a representation for people that are followers of Christ, believers in Christ. But if you're here this morning and you have not put your faith in Christ, today is the day. Jesus has come for you today, this morning. He's given his life in your place today, right here, right now. And I want to give you that opportunity that if you want freedom in Jesus, if you have never put your faith in him, 
that this would be your moment to say, okay, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm yours. Is there anybody here this morning that would just say that and just want to put up your hand? I would love to pray for you. If this is your first time putting your faith in Christ, saying, I want to live for Jesus, is there anybody that would say that? So, Father, I thank you. I thank you that in this place, I believe we are all followers of Christ. We have found that freedom. Lord, I pray that we would now walk in that freedom. All the time, 24-7, the freedom that you have won for us. And so now, Lord, we just allow you, Holy Spirit, begin to speak to us. Whatever areas need to be unveiled to your light, to be exposed to you, Lord. Come, you're invited, you're welcome, come on in. You stand at the door in the book of Revelation. It's a church that you're knocking on the door of. You're knocking on the door of our church right now saying, let me in, let me in. I want to come and I want to work in that area of your life. So Jesus, speak to us now about those areas that you want to bring freedom, you want to bring life to, forgiveness, a covering to. Reveal that now, I pray, Jesus. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.